1,722 children spread, along, spread among five different orphanage buildings. And the amazing thing about George Mueller, and, and something that all accounts I've, I've read and looked at and every time I've heard him spoken of, is he never asked anyone for money. He never asked anyone for donations. He never went to people asking them to, to help support his mission and, and his, his heart for, for the orphans. But the other thing about George Mueller was he was a man who was known to be in constant prayer. And from George Mueller's own accounts, he never went without what he needed. In fact, there's, there's an entry that he wrote, I think this was February 12th, 1842 and he wrote this he said a brother in the Lord came to me this morning and after a few minutes conversation he gave me 2,000 pounds for, for furnishing the new orphan house he goes on to say now I am now I am able to meet all the expenses the Lord not only gives as much as is absolutely necessary for his work but he gives abundantly he goes on to say, This blessing filled me with inexplicable, inexplicable delight. He had given me the full answer to my thousands of prayers during, during the past 1,195 days. And it's amazing. He's such a man of prayer that he, can, he, he knows the amount of days he's been praying for these specific things. He says, The Lord gave me not only what I need for this specific work, but He's given me more. He has abundantly given me. George Mueller was a man who, understand, who understood the truth that we're going to see in our passage today, that the Lord is a Lord who provides for his people. So if you're in Psalm 34, please stand if you're able. And we're going to read our text for this morning. It's verses 8 through 10. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 8. David says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who, are, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for gathering Your people here to to hear your word, to lift up praises to you, to lift up prayer requests to you, but then to have your spirit speak to us through your word. I ask, Father, that you would give me the ability to proclaim your word with, with boldness. I pray that you would use it to draw your people closer to you and then to draw more into the fold so that you, we will leave here glorifying you, the Lord who has provided all things for us and will continue to provide for us. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we continue in Psalm 34, we looked at last Sunday morning the first three verses. And I'll, I'll remind you, we won't go back and look at it, but I'll remind you that David is, is coming up with this psalm. He's pinning this psalm during a very difficult time. He's, he's fleeing from King Saul. He's had to act like a madman to escape this pagan king named, named Achish, and now he's, he's hiding out in a cave, and it's from that cave that this, this psalm of praise and worship goes up. And so we looked at last Sunday, the first three verses, we looked at his call to worship. And then for those of you who are here uh, last Sunday night, we looked at verses 4 through 7, and we saw David worshiping the Lord for delivering him. 
And now here this morning, as I've already said, my prayer is that we'll, we'll leave here knowing that the Lord is the Lord who provides for His people. And we see this in our passage through an invitation, a command, and a promise. You see, first of all, the invitation in verse 8, and it's an invitation to experience the goodness of the Lord. David opens up in verse 8 and he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David here is inviting us to experience what David already knows for a fact. David here isn't making a suggestion. He isn't saying, well, you know what, you've, you've tried all those other things. Maybe just, just try the Lord. Maybe, maybe He'll work out for you. He's not offering the Lord as, as a means to end. What he is saying is, I know for a fact, regardless of what's going on around me, regardless of how uncertain everything else is, I know for a fact that the Lord is good. And before we move on, we need to understand that this is a truth that we need to cling to. We need to hold on to. In the uncertainty of life, when we don't know what's going on with, with whatever is burdening you, when, with your finances, with, with your health, with, I heard, prayer requests for family members, no matter what's happening to you that's trying to draw your, your, your gaze away from the Lord and is trying to, to get you to doubt, the truth of who God is, David says, no, I know for a fact, without a doubt, the one thing I know is this God who I worship, this Lord who has revealed Himself to me, who has delivered me, He is good. But it's not enough to just objectively know that. It's not enough to just, to just be able to say, sure, yeah, the Bible says it. David here is telling us, telling it to us, so it's, it's probably true that the Lord is good. D David is saying, look, I'll proclaim the goodness of the Lord to you all day, every day, if you want. But the most eloquent words, the most beautiful speech is not enough if you don't, for yourself, experience the goodness of God. That's why David here he uses the word taste and see, David is saying, look, I know the Lord is good, and I will tell you all day long that the Lord is good. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There's just something about that word taste. It's, so, it's just something you have to experience. And also, this, this is... Taste obviously speaks to me, if you couldn't tell by my shapely figure. Taste is something I can relate to, and I was thinking about this. We've, we've just moved to Jeffersonville, and there's a, there's a little uh, shop, I think it's owned by some uh, Amish family or Mennonites, I'm not sure how that works out, but they, have, they sell pies, homemade pies. And we bought a homemade peanut butter pie. And I'm, I'm very particular about my peanut butter pie. But this is the best peanut butter pie I've ever tasted. It was delicious. And I, I went to work and I was trying to tell my coworkers about it. And, and 
probably like you sitting here listening, you're th- you can think back to peanut butter pies that you've had before, if you like peanut butter pie. You can think back to pies that you've had before, and you can imagine the taste. You think, okay, yeah, so it's, so it's about like that. And my coworkers, they'd listen, so, oh, yeah, that, that sounds really good. And I, I could even sit down and, and give you an ingredient and, and look up the directions for, for how they, they make it. But still, the best you could imagine, you still wouldn't be able to conjure up the goodness of this pie. But then this past Thursday, we had a food day at work, so I said, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to get a peanut butter pie, and I'm going to take it. I ended up getting two, one for the house and one for them. But anyway, (laughs) all day Thursday, I've had people coming up to me and saying, wow, that pie is really good. You told us it was good. We, We believed you. It's not that we doubted you, but then we tasted it. We experienced the goodness of this peanut butter pie. That's what David is saying about the Lord. You can hear that the Lord is good. You can trust me when I tell you that the Lord is good, but you will not know the goodness of the Lord until you taste and you see, you know for yourself that this Lord you worship, He is good. And David even tells us how we can taste and see that the Lord is good in the second half of the verse. Because he goes on and he says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David says, you taste and you see that the Lord is good. And you do that by placing yourself in him. By trusting yourself to him. Primarily through, only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his, his work on the cross. It is only those people who have hidden themselves in the love of Jesus Christ, have hidden themselves in the finished work of Christ on the cross, who can come out of every storm, come out of every trial, come out of every tribulation, no matter how horrible it is, and they can say, I know that the Lord is good. Think back to, to Noah and the ark. None None of Noah's neighbors, those, those people around him who, who, who refused to listen to him, who, who rejected what he was proclaiming, who refused to hide themselves in the ark, none of them came out of the flood saying that the Lord is good. They all perished in their sin. But Noah and his family, those who hid themselves in God's provision for salvation, and they went through, and I'm sure I wasn't there, I don't know, but I'm sure that that flood, going through that flood in the ark, was no fun deal. It, was no, it wasn't a cruise, vacation. But they came out of that storm, they came out of that flood, they came out of that ark, and they worshipped. Because they had experienced the goodness of the Lord. So there's this invitation that David gives us from, from this from this cave, from this time of hiding and fleeing, he tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good, and and know that the Lord is good because you have taken refuge in Him. But then he goes right from that invitation into the command that we have at the beginning of verse 9. He goes from saying, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him, and then he says, oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. 
Now that seems like a strange transition to us. He goes from declaring the goodness of God, he goes from, from saying, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, and then goes right into verse 9 and says, fear the Lord, you his saints. And we talked about this a little bit Sunday night, but there needs to be a distinction made here between being afraid of God and having a fear for the Lord. And I got this from a, a man named Burke Parsons. He says there's, there's a difference between being afraid of the Lord and having a fear for the Lord. And the cross, the gospel, makes that difference. What I mean by this is there is a sense in which and I don't say this lightly, and I wouldn't say this if it wasn't in the Word of God, but everyone who is outside of Christ, everyone who has not yet bowed the knee to the Son of God, the Messiah, His chosen, His anointed, everyone who is not trusting in His death and resurrection, they need to be afraid of God. Because they have the just and holy wrath of an infinitely perfect God, even now, abiding on them. And if they die in their sin, they will stand before that just and holy God in nothing but their rags of sinfulness. And they will hear this just and holy God say to them, Depart from me, because I never knew you. If you're not taking refuge in God, then you need to be afraid of the judgments and the condemnation of God. And you need to hide yourself in the love and mercy and grace of God the Son. But here in this text, David isn't talking to that group of people. He doesn't say, Oh, fear the Lord, you who are still in rebellion against Him. He doesn't say, oh, fear the Lord, you who are still rejecting him. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. And saints, just so you know, the Roman Catholic Church has tried to hijack that, that word and try to make it apply to super Christians who, who did so many good things. But the word saint just means those who have been set apart for God, those who have been called and chosen, those who are his people his children. So David here is talking to people who don't have to fear the condemnation. As Paul tells us, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. These are not people who have to be afraid that they're going to die and the wrath of God is going to come down upon them because they are hidden in the precious Savior. They are hidden in Him. But yet David still says, fear the Lord. And I think there are two senses in which Christians, children of God, need to fear the Lord. Now the, one, the first sense is the sense in which we understand who He is. We understand His power. We understand that this is the being who spoke galaxies into existence. This is the being who raises up nations and destroys nations. We need to realize that when we're coming to God, yes, we're coming to our Father. And yes, we're coming to the One who has chosen us and who, who loves us. But we are coming to the one who is giving you the very breath that you are breathing right now. An illustration I used Sunday night is I don't, I don't have a, 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 
a horrifying fear of lions. I don't stay awake all night worried that a lion's going to come in and eat me. I don't, I don't, I'm not careful around every corner. I'll say, oh, there might be a lion there. It's, it's going to get me. I don't have that, that fear. I'm not afraid of them in that way. But in the same way, I'm not going to go and walk up to a lion and somehow get in the zoo, get into the enclosure, and stick my head in a lion's mouth. Because I understand what that lion can do. I understand his strength. I understand his power. I understand he is absolutely nothing to be messed with. While I'm not particularly afraid of him, I have a fear of him. That's one sense in which we fear the Lord. But then there's even a more, a truer sense in which we fear the Lord. And this is, we fear the Lord not only because we know His power, but we fear the Lord because we know His goodness. We, we know His love. We know how he has, he has poured down upon us His grace and His mercy and His gifts. And we fear the Lord in the sense of we fear going against the will of the one who has loved us so much. We have that reverence. We have that respect. Not that we're afraid that we're going to lose his love because we know we can never lose his love. Not that we're, we're afraid that we're going to misstep and then a lightning bolt's going to strike us because we know that's not how the Lord operates with his children, but rather we have this respect where we don't want to go against what we know he delights in and what we know he loves. I mentioned my grandma last Sunday and I probably have a lot of stories about my grandparents because we we lived right next to them which is probably another reason for my shapely form but I uh I love my grandpa he was he was one of my heroes he was one of my best friends my grandpa never he never said a cross word to me he never he never hurt me in any way shape or form physically emotionally nothing like that I was not afraid of my grandpa at all but my grandpa, and to this day, I don't know why he had this, but he had an old truck that he kept over the hill. Hadn't run for years. I don't even know how old it was. And in my youthly wisdom, I had a BB gun, and I was out with my BB gun, and I decided no one's using that truck. It's an old truck. No one cares. I'm going to use that truck for target practice. And I shot out every single window of that truck. Pretty good shot, I thought. But my parents found out about it, and my mom, in, in her wisdom, she said to me, because first of all, I was, I was scared to death of whatever was going to come down, come down from, from my parents. Not that they weren't abusive at all, but they were, they were strict and, and they did discipline. But my mom, in her wisdom, she said, nope, I'm not going to do a thing to you. I'm, I'm not going to punish you at all. But you're going to have to tell your grandfather. You're going to have to face your grandpa and tell him that you shot the windows out of his truck terrified me I remember lying awake at night playing the scenario in my head what am I going to say to him how is he going to react to me I've, I've, I've done this horrible thing I've, I've, I've uh, stepped outside of, of his delight out of his desire how in the world am I going to face this man who I love so much and this man who loved me unconditionally and tell him I've done this thing that I know you didn't want me to do that's what David means when he says fear the Lord you his saints have a reverence 
before this Lord. Have a respect. It flows out of the goodness of God. Read his word. See what he's done for you. See how he has provided for you and how he continues to provide for you. And have a fear to desire to walk in a way that pleases him. Not to earn his love. Not out of fear that you're going to lose his love, but because you know you have his love. That's what David means when he says, Fear the Lord, you his saints. Bert Parsons, in that full quote that, he, that I mentioned earlier, he sums it up like this. He says, As Christians, we don't have a servile, cowering, slave-like fear of the Lord. Rather, we have a reverential, humble fear of the Lord. A reverential, humble a fear of the Lord. And the gospel is the difference between being afraid of God because you know His wrath is upon you and having a fear of the Lord because you know you're walking in His love and you don't want to displease Him. So that's that's the command flowing out of the invitation to taste and see the goodness of God to take refuge in him and then he gives this command fear the Lord you his saints and with the command David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us this promise he says again in verse 9 oh fear the Lord you his saints for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now just to backtrack a little bit of what it means to fear the Lord, notice that David here, he links the fear of the Lord with seeking the Lord. He says, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And then at the end he says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. It is only those who truly fear the Lord, who truly have that reverence for God, who truly know His goodness and His love given to us in Jesus Christ. Those are the people who will be seeking after the Lord. But then he gives this promise. And he says it twice. He first says, those who fear Him have no lack. And then he says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now if we didn't pay attention to context. If we didn't know what was going on in David's life right now, it would be really easy to take these verses and to preach a prosperity-type gospel. And indeed, a lot of people in our country and, and across the world, that's how they preach verses like this. They say, what this means is, if you just prove to God that you love Him so much, if you just do this checklist, if you just give Him so many dollars, give to our ministry so much, and the Lord will bless you with a bigger house. The Lord will bless you with a nicer car. The Lord will bless you with a more attractive spouse. Just give God, prove to Him you love Him, and He will give you all of those earthly possessions, everything you could ever dream of. But then you remember where David is. You remember that, that David has lost all of the, the, the home comforts that he had. David, he's not even writing this at, at the comfort of, of shepherding his father's flock and, and laying out under the stars and seeing the beauty of, of the stars, knowing that he's safe in his father's household, his earthly father's household. No, he's, he's running for his life. 
He's escaped, barely escaped Saul. He's acted like a madman, humiliated himself in front of this pagan king to escape him. He's hiding out in a cave. David here is not saying, prove to God your love and he will give you all the comforts. David is saying, if you earnestly seek the Lord, if you honestly fear the Lord, he will provide for you everything you could possibly need. Not everything you want, not even everything you think you need, but everything that he in his wisdom and his love for you as a good father knows that you need. A kid that we were talking about on Wednesday nights, uh, the pastor whose name is Brother Steve, that gets a little confusing sometimes, but we were talking about prayer. And it was mentioned how, really, because a lot of people, they see prayer as this idea of of God as this magical grandpa genie, where you just tell him what you want, and he's going to give you whatever you ask for, no questions asked. It was pointed out that, that, really, all the misconceptions that come with understanding prayer come from misunderstanding the relationship. It's It's not a, we're the masters, he's our butler. It's not a he's, he, has, he is obligated to give us everything we want. It's a he's our father and we're the child. Now, those of you who are parents, you know that your kids ask you for a lot of things. And your kids maybe even tell you that they need a lot of things. They just have to have it. But you know as a parent that for whatever reason, if you think that that thing is, is dangerous to them, that they don't actually need that thing, it's just a want and giving it to them will just make them want more. Whatever in your wisdom, I'm really pandering to the parents here, whatever in your wisdom you decide that, that it's just not the best thing for them, because you love them, you are not going to give them that thing. But as the parent, you don't want them to stop coming to you when there's something that they desire. You want to know the desires of their heart. You want to know what they want. That's the same way our Father is with His children. He's not going to give us everything we ask Him for because He knows better than we what we need. But He still desires for us to come to Him and He will give us everything, everything that we need from Him. Jesus mentions the same thing. If you turn to Matthew chapter 6, he makes a very similar promise. As you turn in there, just thinking about the, the illustration that David uses to, to, to show us that God will give us everything he needs. He, he says, look at the lions. Look at the, the youthful lions. And you see a lion, you see its, its youth, you see its strength, you see its power. And David says, that lion will suffer want. That lion, with all of its power, with all of its youth, with all, with all of its speed, that lion will go hungry before God will let one of his children go without what they need. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body 
more than clothing? Now, we're going to go on, but just so you realize, Jesus here, he's not talking to wealthy people. Jesus isn't talking to people who know where their next meal is coming from. Jesus is talking to the poorest of the poor. Jesus is talking to people who had to labor all day just to get the bread they're going to eat that night for dinner. And Jesus says to those people, don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothing. Isn't your life more than just food or clothing? And then it goes on in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spend. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you O you of little faith and then jump down to verse 33 he ends by saying this but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you Jesus here isn't saying Jesus here isn't saying you shouldn't be careful with your finances Jesus here isn't saying, blow all your money because God's going to bless you with, with whatever you want. Jesus here is saying, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. Know that you have a Father who loves you. You have a Father who owns all things. You have a Father who knows all your needs. Seek His kingdom. Seek His glory. He will take care of these earthly needs, of these, these material things. Don't be anxious. Fear those who fear the Lord will have no lack. Those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. There's a, oh, you mentioned Bible school. There's an old song, and I've only ever heard it at my Bible school. I don't know if we're the only ones who sung it or, or why. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I will not make that mistake. Uh, but the words go, speaking of God, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers, the rocks, and the rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my Father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that He will care for me. That, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting Him, your Father is the one who hung the stars and knows them by name. Your Father is the one who knows every hair on your head. He cares for the birds. He dresses the fields. And you are so much more to Him than the birds or the fields. Do not be anxious. Trust Him and He'll provide. And James goes even further and he gives us an evidence for why we can trust God with this. If you turn to James chapter 1.
it marked? I still couldn't find it. James chapter 1. Look down to verse 16. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So any good thing you have, you have your Father to thank for. But then James goes on and he says, almost as if you want proof, that he provides all the good things. You want proof that he blesses you with everything that he knows is good. Of his own will, he brought us forth from the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You want proof that you have a father who cares for you. You have a father who will provide for you. Look at what he's done for you in salvation. Look at how his spirit took the word of God and washed your heart, gave, placed His Spirit upon you and gave you new life. He has provided for you eternal, everlasting salvation, blessing, living with Him until way after everything else has pa- passed away. Eternal communion with the Holy Triune God. If your God can provide that for you, if He can give you salvation and take care of you for eternity future without end, why would you ever doubt that He will care for you while you are here, while you are on earth? If He can provide the eternal salvation, if He can provide eternal bliss and everything you need for all of eternity, that He can provide everything you need for the here and for the now. Those who fear Him, those who seek Him, have no lack, lack no good thing. As we turn to, back to Psalm 34, there's one more thing that I wanted to point out that, that honestly I, I hadn't noticed until preparing this sermon as many times as, I, as I've read this passage. And that is this, the ultimate good, the ultimate good that the Lord can give to you and will give to you is more of Himself. And you see this if you look at verse 8. In the invitation at, at, at the, the first phrase of verse 8, He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And then, at the end of verse 10, he says, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The Lord is good. Those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. God's ultimate promise to you, His children, God's ultimate promise to all those who fear Him, to all those who seek Him, is You can have all of me you could ever possibly want. I am yours. You seek me, you will never have too much of me. I will give you all that you could possibly want. Turn to Isaiah chapter 54. There's another verse I was going to use for this, but then the the Lord, I, I really don't know how it happened. I read this right before I came up here and it just, made the point so clearly. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 10. And the Lord makes this promise to His people. He says in Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. Now think about how permanent that is. The mountains, the hills, they may depart. They may be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. 
and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is God's promise to provide for his people. And this is God's promise to provide for his people the one thing that will always, without end, be good for his people. God says, if the mountains pack their bags and take off, at least that's the way I read it, for the mountains may depart. If they take their bags and they take off, if the hills are removed, still my steadfast love will not be removed from my people. My covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The Lord is the Lord who provides for his people. So here we have the invitation given. David says, the Spirit says through David, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. There's the invitation. Will you accept that invitation? And I'm speaking to to non-Christians and Christians. Every single day of your life, will you wake up and you say, today I will experience the goodness of the Lord because I have taken refuge in him. Here we have the command. Fear the Lord, you his saints. Will you obey that command? Will you live every single day with this reference, with this respect, with the one for the one who has loved you so much, the one who had every right to cast your soul into eternal damnation and leave you there to rot, but he placed his love upon you. He placed you in Christ. He saved you from his wrath for all eternity. Will you live in reverence respect, striving to do what is pleasing for him. Not out of fear of losing his love. You won't. Not out of trying to make him love you more. He can't. Because you are in Christ. He loves you as much as he possibly can. But because of his goodness. And because of his love. There is the command. Will you follow it? And here we have the promise. The promise that because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And, and hidden yourself in him. Because you fear the Lord and you, you, you are his child whom he loves till the end. He promises you will have no lack. You will lack no good thing. And I will give you all of me you could ever possibly want. There's the promise. Will you trust it? Will you believe it? And will you walk every day saying, great is thy faithfulness. I'll pray and then turn it over to you. Father God, thank you for your word.